On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're heading back to Imperial Rome in Domina on Sky Atlantic, exploring an alternate history of the American South in Barry Jenkins' adaptation of The Underground Railroad on Amazon, and finally finding out what we thought of Jupiter's legacy on Netflix. Plus, we catch up with the latest seasons of Motherland and Inside Number 9, and Rafe Spall and Esther Smith drop by the show to talk about the second series of Trying on Apple TV+. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that against all probability, timeliness and, let's be honest, better judgement, has finally succumbed to peer pressure. Yes, after resisting it for the past couple of months, we have, in fact, thrown our principles out of the window and watched Invincible. Uh, you can find out what we actually made of that in a few short moments, because joining me on the show this week are... Well, let's be honest, the same pair of Bellens who do so every week, but it's Pilot TV's very own Mauler twins, Terry White and Boyd Hilton. Hello. Hiya. Hello. Wow. You can bottle that enthusiasm. Uh, <laughs> I didn't understand what you just said. What did you just say? We what, twins? See, I see. This is the thing, boys. Oh, yeah. This they're the ones at yeah. the beginning uh, of Invincible. Oh, there I've got we it. go. I've got there it. See, go. I did watch it. I did watch it. See, did that was a it. test. That yeah. was a test. That was okay. homework to see if you <sighs> actually watched it. Terry <sighs> failed. Boyd passes. Well done. Um, <laughs> let's get straight it into it. I thought it was a shit joke. Boyd questioned the joke. <laughs> Let's yeah. get into it. Let's get into it. Okay, so it's animation. Let's be honest, a cartoon. But despite this, was the show as invincible as advertised? Bear in mind, we got a lot, a lot of shit on social media for not having reviewed it. Boyd's fault. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Housen. And, uh, and, and Housen. you know, everyone was harassing us. And they were saying, you've got to watch Invincible. It's amazing. You've got to get over this egregious prejudice you've got against animation. It's one of the greatest shows on TV. You've got to watch it. Got to watch it. Got to watch it. I said, and if you don't love it by the end of the first episode, then you have absolutely no soul at all now bear in mind this is a 47 minute cartoon like that, yeah. that's a lot that is a lot of animation yeah. but i sat through it i sat through it as did you guys or to point yeah. at least terry sat through some of it so all, tell us I what you thought all of it in two two um what's the word sessions sittings two sittings i was forced to to go through i had a break in the middle for motherland because i quite, quite frankly couldn't take anymore um did you do a classic Terry and watch it twice to make well, sure you didn't I like it? <laughs> well, I, so I watched it one and a half times because I watched half of it, turned it off, watched Motherland, and then I um, watched it again from the beginning this morning. And what did you think? So is it basically like what what would happen if like Spider-Man was Superman's son? <laughs> I mean, in many ways, it's not that dissimilar to Jupiter's Legacy. Well, but it's yeah, like, it's like I found it weird yeah. that we were watching this that... I yeah. watched them back yeah. to back this morning and I was like, hang on, what just yeah. happened? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's just the it's same weird. thing. <laughs> so I I think it's meant to be funny and satirical, is is kind of what I gathered. Um tonally tonally it's very it has a lot in common with Jupiter's legacy, really, actually. Um can we talk about the animation style? Is it meant to be so it reminds me of She Ra. And when I say it reminds me of She-Ra, that very... What, is there a name for that animation style, which is... It's it's fairly... Um, I know what you mean. So it's quite minimalist. Basic, it's a bit sort of Saturday morning yeah. cartoon style animation. I was going to say basic, but I'll, well, let's say yeah, minimalist. Yeah, it is, it is a bit basic. Yeah. Is that deliberate? I think it is deliberate. I, I think it's deliberate, yeah. I think it's the, the look is, is deliberately kind of um, clean, I would say, and... Um, I, I really liked it. And part of the problem for me is I don't want to spoil what's coming up with Jupiter's Legacy, but they do have so much in common. And this is, I mean, this is about a million times better. I mean, I will say that instantly, instantly much, much better 
than Jupiter's Legacy. And I, it was like I watched Jupiter's Legacy first, then I watched this, and this was felt like a palate cleanse to me because I think the writing and the dialogue and the the whole setup and and even the style of it, I quite like I quite like that, that that style of it, um, the 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 look and feel of it. So I, I I was won over very much very quickly, and I really enjoyed it. But I think that's partly because it was a reaction to <laughs> Jupiter's Legacy, which we will get to later. But um, is the dialogue meant to be so kind of dry and awkward? And yeah, is that deliberate? Awkward. Um, I think it's meant to be. Yeah, I think it's meant to be kind of quite quippy and and dry in that way. Yeah, and I thought I think like you know the stuff the high school stuff I thought was good. You know his gay best friend quipping to him was good, and I thought the whole the ending, the ultra violent ending um, without one of the first episode um, was kind of surprising and quite clever. So yeah, I mean I think dialogue wise, I thought it was again ten million times better than Jupiter's well, Legacy. Where well, has a sense of humor? Yes. Jupiter's Legacy right. yes. it's definitely got, lacks. It's, yeah, it's definitely got a wry tone to it. Yeah. But that's a whole other conversation, which we'll get to. Mm. But the thing with Invincible, I think you've got two aspects to it. Like, I think you're right. I think it is quite smartly written. It is quite, quite, you know, it has a sense of humour. It's, it's on the one hand, it understands its medium and it's deconstructing its medium, but it also pokes fun at it and it has fun with the dialogue. And there, there are some solid gags in there as well. Um, I, my sort of issue with it is kind of what we talked about before is I can't get past animation generally. And, and I think the shall we say clean, the clean style of animation here uh, didn't help at all. Like if it's slightly more detailed, sort of Clone Wars, their sort of 3D CGI, which has an element of spectacle to it, then when you have action sequences, even though they're animated, I can I can get into the spectacle of it. I can enjoy the spectacle. Because this has that kind of, you know, She-Ra-esque vibe going on. When you have a big fight sequence, I'm just bored because it's just quite badly drawn characters twatting each other with sticks. I'm like, this is not entertaining. Yeah, and you can have good dialogue and good quips in there, but there are large sections of just violence and badly drawn violence is just boring to see. Whereas if it had had more of a sort of a visual texture to it, if it had been more detailed, I probably would have found those more engaging. So I enjoyed the dialogue, I enjoyed when the characters were interacting, but the action sequences all felt very flat to me yeah I, yeah i, I think because yeah. i'm with you because i think this kind of conceit and we will also get into this with Ju jupiter's legacy relies <laughs> on bombast and a mm. very kind of um just a a brilliantly executed set pieces and and that visual iteration of that spectacle is so important but you see, the dialogue didn't really work for me either. I found it just a bit stilted and uh, uh, and I find that in a lot of animation. But I think there's something about the genre, the genre of story and the visual treatment that was a disconnect, but it was a deliberate disconnect, right? I also suddenly realised that the one animated thing that I did do absolutely unequivocally think is brilliant was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yes. But, th but that was stunning yeah. from a right, visual point of view. That is a stunning yeah. film, yeah. right? But and I think visually it's stunning, and it feels like this is like a micro budget version of that in terms of the tone and the. I mean, that this is slightly uh, this is more adult, isn't it? Because mm. it has like sex and violence. But that was a very but that's a very sophisticated film and a very sophisticated piece of writing, incredibly complicated kind of story and all of that. But this feels like it's aspiring to that. I mean, I've no, I mean, I'm sure this was made completely, you know. But I, in, in, I can see, sense that they're trying to do something like that with this. Um, but that had a obviously a massive budget and um, you know huge ambition and v incredible v skill in all areas. So, but I did, but I have to go. But I I I I, I am going to carry on watching this. I think I'm going to you know I I I enjoyed it. 
a lot more than I thought I would. See, I felt like if, for example, this was like, I get all the way through this, I was thinking with this content, with this storyline, with this writing, if this was live action, mm. I couldn't help think I would enjoy this by mm. magnitudes more. Yeah, that's yeah, that's I always think that that that's, <laughs> that's, that is what we're all having in common with uh, that people get annoyed with us about. Yeah, which I didn't think that about Into the Spider Verse, yeah. right? So that is so great that you don't think yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, but it's spectacle, isn't it? They have a spectacle there yeah. which you could put up against any kind of big budget movie. Yeah. Whereas here, again, She-Ra. It, it, she yeah, I yeah. just kept thinking of She-Ra all she the way through. And I, and I don't mean that to be rude to, you know, the animation team. I'm really sorry. But I just... <laughs> but I, And it does feel like those bits, you know, that, that ultraviolet ending and some of the issues they take, pairing that with the really kind of minimalist animation and maybe as you as you kind of open with james it's like a, a deconstruction of it and it's it's kind of poking fun of it almost and and it's met the form and the content is meant to jut up against each other um but i and do you know what boyd makes an amazing point because spider-verse is pretty much the only mm. i mean that that world i don't want to see that live action i want to sit that is a beautifully mm. impeccably rendered world that i love being in every single second that was but that that for me is is when it really works and this i mean i was also thinking oh god this would be terrible in live action but um that probably speaks more to my um lack of enjoyment anything else and then i watched jupiter's legacy the question is terry the question is terry would you watch a kind of dour working class drama animated in this style i mean that's really the, you know <laughs> i was thinking what what would I enjoy as animation? What of my like likes would I? And I was like, you don't want to see like nil by mouth meet Shira, do you? You don't want to see. That's not what, what even I want to see. So <laughs> I do. I definitely so, do now. And I feel like we're letting people down because I know people love animation. I know a lot of those people listen to this podcast, and I feel like there are going to be people who are deeply disappointed in us right now um but it's just and i i don't know it's just something i've never really connected with and and spider-verse is pretty much alone as, mm. as an example of when i've truly kind of succumbed to it and felt the storytelling and the visual world they created was on par with you know the very best of of live action and so i don't want to like let down our animation fans mm. but also i'm never going to watch this again <laughs> so i was thinking but it, to, to the point about doing an animated you know um social realist drama because richard linglater did did those um rotoscoped animated yeah, films like waking and, life and yeah now and now i hate I, have, I really hated those as well in fact i remember waking life was one of the few films i almost walked out of at the screen of that it was so boring <laughs> i was so bored by it and infuriated by the pretentiousness of it so yeah, his animated stuff, I can't stand that either. I think it's fair to say that we, like, it, it is our failing, this particular thing. I don't think we're saying animation is bad. It's just that for some reason, the three of us are all animation twats where somehow we find mm. it inaccessible. I think I'm with you guys. I think I can, I can, animation as a medium needs to have an element of spectacle that draws me. I think Spider-Verse, things like that. But, you know, but even some of like Raya and the Last Dragon that was, is gorgeous to look at some of these things um, Mitchell's versus machines again another stunning film I think when there's when there's a, a sort of a sense of sort of visual luxury to it then 
I can access it. But no matter how good the material, if I can't get past the animation style, I, I just find did animation you see, inaccessible. Did you see that The Simpsons was voted the best sitcom of all time in Rolling Stone this week? I mean, that's Simpsons hasn't been good for decades, so I don't, don't well, know whether that's, you know. It, but it, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. But it, it, but the, the interesting thing about it is I, I can't even, I barely even consider it a sitcom to yeah. me because it is anima- it's an animation. Because it's an animation, yeah. But it was yeah. the number one of a sitcom of all time in their hundred, I think a list of a hundred. Um, I was pretty. I was, and that didn't surprise me because it is. It, it is worshipped by you know. It has like moments of genius. It does of course, have moments yeah. of genius. I mean, yeah. even yeah, now. the writing is incredible. And there was that interview with the, the the elusive writer in New Yorker. So it is you know, but but it does show how twatty we are. Cause I am because yeah, the fact that it's animated does means I it can't ever be my favorite. Yeah. But then, then, you know, all of our listeners from, to this podcast should take heart from the fact that animation twat that you are, Boyd, you've said mm. that you may watch more Invincible. Yeah, so- I, I did really enjoy it. And uh, like Bojack Horseman, I like. that. Bojack Horseman is stylish. That's a stylish, visually mm. very stylish mm. show. I don't know. And, like and it's brilliantly written your face. It looks <laughs> James' it, like, face it, is literally mm. like, yeah, mm. no. No, I just a cartoon about a horseman. I just it's I know, I know and I know it's brilliantly written. And yes, I have watched an episode and I do appreciate that it's very very good. But I cannot get past the animation of it. I just, I, just look, I need flesh and bones and blood and skin, as in I need a human. Not I not that not that I need all those things independently of each other. But it's mm-hmm. you know I I I find it really hard to. I think I said this last week give kind of emotional backstory and substance to a drawing. <laughs> a drawing. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Brilliant. What's the line from Friends? Yes, it was particularly sad when the guy drawing stopped Bam- drawing the deer yeah, in Bambi. Bambi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I apologise to all of the animation fans on this podcast. I particularly apologise to any animators who listen to this podcast. I swear to God, we're oh not terrible God, people. Yeah. Can you imagine? Well, maybe we are, but I'm, yeah. We Apolog- are. Apologies for everything that's just we happened. We're awful, awful people. Have we been watching anything else? Yes. Uh, I want to mention, um, Terry's been mentioning it every week anyway, Mayor of Easttown. I mean, it just gets better and better. Ooh, I haven't watched the third episode yet. Oh, and you know what? I couldn't help myself because Terry's very oh. very rightly sticking to the live Monday night show. I've, I've watched up to episode five, which, oh, which HBO sent us the links for. I couldn't. So I stayed up till two in the morning the other night um, to watch up to episode five. I'm now desperate. Please, God, HBO send us the rest. I think there's two more, I think. Yeah, I've oh, got those God. five, but I'm trying to watch well, them week five, by week as well. Uh, no spoilers. Five, it all kicks off. I mean, it is incredible. And what it is, I'm loving it. I, I think it's now, it's, it's going to, it's, it's so well done. The characters are so brilliant. And she is, there's, fu- it's funny. There's a really funny bit, I think in episode four, which is almost where she, where she literally is laughing. That's something We've detected that a joke. There has been a <laughs> well, joke in Mary's town. Well, but you know what? It's so confident and it's so confident in, in its realism that it works brilliantly because that so that moment where the, this funny thing happens and she can't stop laughing about it is like a huge thing because of the grimness obviously mm. of everything else that's happening in the show and of her daily life etc so yeah it's fantastic so that and starstruck which you reviewed a few weeks ago i think when the week was it the week yeah. you were away Terry? It was, yeah Terry i think was it was up, yeah I watched the whole of that. Um, I didn't I watch two or three episodes, and that, that is so such a kind of um, uplifting joy. It's an absolute textbook romantic comedy. Um, Rose Matafeo is brilliant in it. Um, Nikesh Patel's a love interest is brilliant in it, and it's completely formulaic in every single way, as all the best romantic comedies are. But the detail of it, and just the sheer kind of 
I don't know, there's something incredibly lovable about everyone involved mm. and about the central couple. Um, I, it's fantastic. I really liked it. Yeah, I enjoyed that one as well. I need to catch up with that. Terry, what have you been watching? Uh, so I was watching all the 753 shows for this podcast today. <laughs> but, like, also, what, we, um, what we should also mention, because um, uh, we talked about it elsewhere, is the finale of Line of Duty obviously aired since last week's podcast. Um, we didn't talk about it then. We are not going to talk about it now, other than to say massive figures, although... Uh, Jed Mercurio is um, digging into that data for you on his Twitter feed, if you have any questions. <laughs> yes, he um, is. Uh, but we did record a spoiler special for Empire on this. So if you are an Empire spoiler special subscriber, it is subscribing. Subscriber is now in your feed. And if not, you can subscribe. But we did uh, spend a good couple of hours digging into that finale. And lots of you have shared your thoughts with us on Twitter um so please do listen to that if you want to know uh exactly what we think because we're not going to say it here because i have had a few people tweet us desperately concerned they're not going to be able to listen to this because we're going to ram it full of spoilers but we are not that is all we shall say that is all we shall say yeah you can sign up to the empire spoiler special podcasts at empireonline.com slash spoiler specials and as terry said we do talk at great length about the whole of season six of line of duty and in fact line of duty as a whole uh, and it is not just me asking a lot of questions and boyd and terry simply saying no comment <laughs> i promise um uh time time as boyd you said is the best thing on telly at the moment in my humble appearance what is happening today in my humble opinion also my humble appearance um and i am starting starstruck this weekend because uh tons and tons of people have recommended it to me um that's all i've watched Okay. Uh, I, what have I been watching this week? Oh, well, Game of Thrones, let's be honest. That's pretty much all I've been watching this week. I am now ooh, like a third of the way into season six. Jon Snow has just come back to life. Spoilers. Uh, yeah, it's a good chip. Enjoying are you watching lot. it as it goes out on Skylantic? Because Skylantic is repeating it, aren't they? Or are you watching yes. it on your own? No, I'm watching it on my own. I'm okay. watching my own. I'm trying to get through about a season a week at the moment, which I'm kind of doing quite nicely. But I'm enjoying it immensely. I mean, weirdly, this actually comes on to this week's listener yes. question, which yes. essentially, uh, this one comes from Fraser Nickel. And he asked, what is the most rewatchable series? What would be the one show you could just put on repeat and relax? Now, no one's going to say Game of Thrones is something you can just put on and, <laughs> and relax. Because frankly, it's incredibly traumatic and i'd forgotten you know like the burning of shireen and things like that some of the episodes are so unspeakably horrific that you actually have to go and watch something like motherland or starstruck afterwards just so you can go to bed you know without being traumatized by the whole thing but it brings it sort of invites you into that world so beautifully i like as, as escapism it is it is an incredible show to watch uh but yes that said I, i'm not sure i would call it you know repeatable comfort view i could watch this show endlessly but it's not comfort food like what mm. i think i think what fraser is looking for is that kind of thing you know your friend your televisual pal that will accompany you in those sort of long dark nights of lockdown so what would yours be well this question i was thinking when you when you said uh, really this question is because comedies i can watch again and again and again i mean i've banged on many many times about i watch fraser every morning on channel four sometimes double triple bills um Ellen Partridge I can watch again and again and again every iteration of Ellen Partridge um I've watched every episode of the current of the new series three times at least so far and we're up to three four coming out soon um so comedies you can watch again and again in Seinfeld Curb etc so I think the really interesting is drama is which dramas 
work as on repeat viewings. And mm. I think it's interesting your Game of Thrones love because I did accidentally watch an episode that went out on Sky Atlantic the other week, and it, and I was thinking actually it is the wit, it's the humor of Game of Thrones. And the kind of the 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 um the wit that I think is built into it, into the writing of it, that makes it rewatchable uh, above and beyond the the spectacular moments and yeah. the the distress, as you say, the traumatic moments. There's a lot of sexual violence as well, isn't there? There is a the lot. Thing, a some lot. bits really unpleasant. Yeah, really unpleasant. Um, but the characterization, the writing of the characters for such an epic thing with dozens and dozens of characters that you're that you're you're cutting between, it was so impressive. I think at its height. Of that show, so I, I think you know, I would probably rewatch Game of Thrones, even though I take the piss out of you for doing it on a constant basis because this is your third or fourth, maybe, rewatch of it. I mean, it's but I, that makes sense to me. Whereas I can't imagine, like, I've seen The Wire once, the whole thing, I've seen it all the way through. I can't imagine rewatching it, and I oh, wonder I if have. It- have you? I have, and I'm yeah. going. I'm planning another one as well. Really? Again, like so. For really? me, it's different. For me, it's like it shows that draw. And we talk about the different ways that we access TV shows. And for me, it's very much escapism. It's very much being sucked into a world, believing it, and leaving like the real world behind. And like so, so the West Wing. Obviously, I've rewatched more times than I can possibly count. Game of Thrones is one that will suck me in. Battlestar Galactica is another one that I find completely absorbing and addictive in a way that I can't stop once I start. And The Wire, even though it's a slightly more reality based world, it is so well. Drawn and it and in, in so ways like you know the sort of like slums of Baltimore is so distinct from sort of middle class England where I lived. You know what I mean? That I do get sucked into that world, and I think the characters are unbelievable in that. Um, mm-hmm. And and Jimmy McNulty is and the bunk are incredibly good company. Okay, uh, so, yeah, I guess so. Maybe I should try. I should try. I haven't rewatched it. Maybe I'll give it a go. Um, the West Wing obviously works because it's just half comedy anyway, basically. Um, but I think. And I think the leftovers is, is what I think I've watched the leftovers a lot of those episodes two or three times. The I don't other thing know that, that I could watch that again. Oh, uh, it's bleak. It's really bleak, <laughs> it's but it's so, so well done. The film you kind of enjoy the filmmaking. I think mm. is so beautifully done, and uh, so I, I really, I really enjoy watching those episodes again. I haven't done it. I've rewatched all the way through in sequence. I just watched episodes every now and then that I remember mm. loving because um, I've got it all on my uh, Sky Q. So and Watchmen, I think probably again. Damon Lindelof, I think, is very good at making stuff rewatchable. No one's rewatching uh, Lost. Come no, on, no. I mean, but people do. People love rewatching Lost. I, I am not one of them, but people do. So there would be my suggestions at this stage. Oh, and House. Oh my God, House. Procedural. I mean, I know what Terry's going to say. House, I can watch episodes of again and again and again. But isn't this come down to like I think procedurals? They don't require much attention. You can just have them sort of nattering on in the background because you don't really miss much. You can't do a massive rewatch of The Wire and then like fuck off to make a cup of tea and yeah. come back. You miss something. You know, yeah. you can't really do that. Whereas I, as someone who is genetically incapable of multitasking, I can't do TV as background noise. Like, I will sit down and watch a show. And okay, yeah, I might occasionally go on Twitter while I'm watching it, but I will watch a show i cannot have a show on while i'm doing other things or it stresses me out and i have to pause it but that's just i think it's the formula as well so i i i think we all do it for slightly different reasons but obviously there's overlapping and for me it's the comfort of the formula so when i obsessively watch svu and i went through a phase when i lived alone it's hard to do with a baby where i would i would go to (laughs) sleep with svu on and i would watch two to three episodes every night in bed and it was my thing and it's the and the same as when I watch SVU at any other time of day, it's the formula. It's knowing exactly what's happened. And I would watch the same episodes over and over again. So there's one with Jennifer Love Hewitt called Behave that I must have seen about 35 times. 
and I like knowing what what happens. And I've watched them all so many times that I know the script word for word, and I know the camera shots, and I know the angles, and I know everything. And it's the same because I was making a list of the stuff that I just rewatch over and over again. And it's Gavin and Stacey, which and and this is slightly different. Gavin and Stacey and The Office go together for me. So I've seen Gavin and Stacey and The Office so many times, and there's something about the way it makes me feel. I watch them both around the same, well, around the same time, and I was single at that point. It just it like listen hearing the music on Gavin and Stacey, and I it takes me back to a certain time in my life. But also both of them, I I I like that I know the story arc and I know exactly what's going to happen in season one and in season two, and in the Christmas specials. I've seen the Christmas special of The Office too many times to count. West Wing, certain solo episodes, um, and then the same with uh, Girls and Sex and the City. Again, both of them. I have certain episodes that I like to watch obsessively, but I also like already knowing the arc of each season and jumping game where I want to. And then if I want to fast forward a bit of story because I didn't like that particular arc, then I will jump an entire half season and get to the bit that I like. So it's just comfort for me. And I there are things like I can watch, like Gavin and Stacey, I don't think is the best TV show ever made, but I think there's something about it about the formula of it about it i just find it really safe and and it makes me feel like warm inside um i definitely don't watch anything again that's pretty horrific i saved that for my film watching thank you very much um uh, <laughs> so they're all kind of much of a muchness but they all get i have to say whether it's a, an hour-long american police procedural or it's an half hour british sitcom they both do the same job for me um and it is comfort like i and i still watch friends i have to say saturday is my day for watching friends so i have it on in the house while i you know i'm with my son i'm doing whatever around the house not cleaning but you know whatever i'm doing and i will literally i think probably i watch an average of like six episodes of friends every saturday and I've seen them all hundreds of times, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. But Friends makes me feel safe as well. You know what else I think about Friends? I've been thinking about this. You know how people seem really shocked that, like, those people have got older? Like, they they are all now in their 50s or whatever. And people are always really shocked <laughs> that they're old. And I think it's because they're still beamed into our homes seven days a week as their 20-something and 30-something <laughs> selves. So whenever we see them as their 50-something selves, we're like, holy shit, you've aged. Well, of course they've aged because it's 30 years since they were mm. on our telly. That's just something I've been obsessed about. Because, <laughs> But I saw you yesterday. Yeah, you were 27. because they are, put, they are sent into our homes on a daily basis, frozen in this time capsule of this age they were at. And then we're always shocked that they've got older. I just wanted to say that because um, it's been on my mind. Okay. Yeah, good point. I've watched The Office uh, probably every once every six months, probably since it came out. So that must be like, yeah. I mean, I, I completely on, on, agree with you there. Yeah. I have watched The Office never. <gasps> so what? you know, oh, Jesus wept. Did we know this. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, well, yeah you said you know this before. This. Yeah, it's famous. I've never watched Gavin and Stacey. Uh, yeah. I've never watched The Office. The Office I've though, never watched I mean, any of this stuff because I've always seen. I've seen like one Gavin and Stacey and quite liked it, but didn't watch anymore. The Office is just not my sense of humour. I've watched one and I spent most of it hiding under a blanket, oh, and I can't the watch is that amazing. kind of humour. Oh my god! Yeah, I still can't love rewatching it. it. Yeah, more difficult than animation for me. Sorry. Oh my god! But I when I when I was a teenager my comfort food for, for for tv so what i used to i had little had little little 
sort of like it's like it was on wheels so it was like a little I had a little tv on a little table on wheels and it had a vhs recorder on the bottom bit and this little tv on the top i used to wheel it over to my bed when i went to sleep and i used to go to sleep watching vhs tapes and they would either be black adder red dwarf faulty towers or star trek like these are my happy those oh are my, my happy God, things that that it's not original so star trek it was next gen you know that, 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 kind of that nighttime diet explains everything <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. So, you know, Edmund Blackadder, Basil Fawlty, Arnold Rimmer, all of these things have kind of bled into my personality. Yeah. That and Jean-Luc Picard, who is obviously my hairdresser. So, you know, it's uh it's it's why it's do you well. find um why do you find the office so excruciating? And yet you've got faulty Cringe towers. Comedy. Because uh, what? well, I know what you see it's Forty not towers the s- is loads of excruciating situations. It's not the same though. It's not the same kind of excruciating. And I'm not sure I can easily put my finger on the distinction. But I think it's because Faulty Towers is slapstick. It's farce. It's just, it's Mm. ridiculously over the top. I don't think I, like, watching any episode of Faulty Towers, I don't think I'm ever embarrassed for Basil. Because Basil doesn't give a fuck. Like, he's so 100% who he is all the time. He's completely unapologetic about it. I don't think he's ever embarrassed. I don't think any of them are really embarrassed. So I guess some of the situation. Embarrassed. He does get you're wrong. He does get embarrassed, particularly when when there's posh people and there's yeah, well, whole yes. class. Thing. Okay, touch of class. He wants to impress. Like yes, he does get embarrassed. That he's, yeah, that he yeah. wants his he wants the service in the hotel to be of a level that it isn't when but it comes. It's not, to... But he's never in cringe situations. I don't yeah, think. Like this picture was like right. You know, I, mm. I yeah I I I I think there's a definite distinction there. Where something like Curb Your Enthusiasm is cringe comedy, which I oh, do yeah. find. Yeah. You know, and again, you can tell it because there are the pregnant pauses, those awkward silences that those comedies do so well which yeah. i just die a thousand tiny deaths during um you know extras weirdly extras i could watch more easily than the other two i'm not sure why but i i, I found extras less squirm inducing yeah. Uh, yeah i quite enjoyed that one but again i didn't watch all of them i watched about maybe four episodes of it it's it's an interesting point actually because uh, I mean I rewatched The Office very very recently. It's the twentieth anniversary coming up, mm. and um, it actually doesn't. It, it, so I I can tell you exactly why extras is okay with you because so there are scenes in extras w- where um, the main character gets into a really awkward situation. He's lied about something and he has to cover up for himself and extricate himself from that situation. Very old school sitcom type of sequences where people bullshit other people and they get and 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 they somehow find a way of not getting caught in in the office mm. he get they get caught so when for example um david brent in the office lies in a very early episode about someone he creates someone out of his imagination a worker who doesn't even exist and then they go down to the shop floor with his boss and she's like well where is he and he just gets found out and it's excruciating. So <laughs> yeah. it doesn't take the easy way out, the traditional sitcom easy way out. And that happens again and again and again. He just end, ends up being in an awful, terrible situation. Like he'll make Dawn cry and she's crying in front of us out of something terrible he said. And there's no easy resolution to it. She mm-hmm. hates him for it and it's really grim. So I think, yeah. Whereas Basil would like pretend yeah. to faint or right. something. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like there's something yeah. absurd would exactly. happen which would get yeah. you out of yeah. that situation. Well, it's like when people go, look over there and they run off. Yeah, like yeah, it's kind exactly. of whatever the equivalent of that. And that just doesn't happen in the office. It does make yeah. it kind of incredible. Really. It's the Fremshyman of it. It is so acute that for me it's torture. It's absolute torture. Ooh. I can't I can't do it. Well, Fraser, I hope that has answered your question. If you have a question for the Pilot TV podcast, then do DM it to at Pilot TV Pod on Twitter and I will dig through and find it there. Time now for this week's guests. Uh, trying returns to Apple TV Plus next week with Rafe Spall and Esther Smith going through the trials and tribulations of adopting a child. Both Rafe and Esther stopped by the podcast last week to talk about season two 
with Boyd. Welcome to the Pilot TV podcast. How's it going? It's going all right. Yeah. We've had a nice day of talking about this this show that we love, and uh, we're we're pleased to be here with TV legend Boyd Hilton on the uh, on the Pilot <laughs> TV podcast. Thanks, mate. I should say I can see you in a splendid setting. You're in a delicious big suit because I'm just I just feel I have to get this picture to the listeners. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so you're looking very classy, obviously. As always. Anyway, oh, let me get straight you. into this. This series two of Tron. What's the difference between filming series one and two? Was it a completely different experience this time around? Well, I think in light of the fact that we were filming series two during the pandemic, that obviously created a, a different kind of working environment but actually it's one that I feel like we all of us very easily adapted to within like the first couple of days because inevitably going into it we didn't know what that model was going to look like but it just it you know it was it felt so seamless actually that we were just able to kind of carry on working and producing the you know the, the work as if as if as if it was season one again and um also, like the first day of filming just kind of felt like we hadn't really had any time apart, actually. Also, it was such a joy to be able to work. It was such a joy to be able to work and uh, such a relief that we were able to get it made. I'm so pleased that we were able to do that and that we were able to finish it as well. Yeah, absolutely. To, to echo what Esther said, it was, um, you know, we were shooting uh, in, uh, you know, what could be construed as or approximated as the height of the pandemic really at points and um we were always made to feel incredibly safe you know a maximum sort of covert security was observed um uh you know which involved obviously lots of testing um uh bubbles um masks social distancing um all, all of the above um but it, it, you know, we, the quality of the show was never compromised, which was absolutely important. You know, that was a worry, um, which was uh, soon dispelled from the first day, really, when uh, when we were getting some really great stuff. And I think we've done a really good job of <clears throat> looking like we've shot this show in the pre-COVID utopia of 2019. Yeah, after watching the show, you cannot tell at all. I'm, I'm always amazed that you cut off from watching a show that was filmed in COVID. It's absolutely true um, this time around. Remind us, where, where are Nick Jason at the start of season two, I think, in terms of the adoption process they're going? Yeah, so at the start of season two, we've just left them at the end of season one where they've been um, approved for panel uh, by panel. So they're approved to get a kid, to adopt a kid. And so we meet them at series two when they're trying to be matched with a child. And inevitably, that's a whole other journey, which feels like the stakes are even higher because they there's a lot of heartbreak because there's a lot of competition. It's not as easy and simple as just being given a child because you've been approved. You have to then go through these other obstacles and um, they're having to navigate them and navigate the... Uh, you know, potent, huge potential for rejection, particularly when you find a kid that you really connect with and you really want and you really feel like that is your child. And they, you know, that 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 happens to them and they're having to, the fall is greater because because they it's more tangible now. It's like they've found their, their, their little person that they want to take home and give a forever home to. And it might not work in that there in, in the way that they want it to. And they also, have, so they have to be prepared for that. So there's a, yeah, there's a lot of potential for, for more heartbreak and, but they, it's really interesting to see how they navigate that and how they navigate the competition of it as well. Um, so I guess everything you've just, everything you've just said m- means that the stakes are higher. 
I guess. Mm. Stakes are slightly higher. The potential for heartbreak is greater, which uh, is obviously interesting to watch, I hope. But um, what's still there is at the centre is this um, this couple who really love each other, who I think that as an audience member you root for. Um, you, you, you want things to work out for them. Um, so that still sustains, um, sustains, but the, but the stakes of the show are, are slightly higher in season two. It is an emotional roller coaster. So I was watching it, uh, you know, last couple of days, and I mean, I'm absolute wreck watching it. Tears flowing, like filming the scenes are emotional for both of you when you you are literally in tears of various turns of events. Do you film that? Do you just do those once? Or do you have to do small takes and you have to be, get the tears flowing again? How do you find those scenes? Yeah, well, that you know, you you do have to do multiple takes. So that's always I always feel it's always incredibly daunting when you know that you've got those scenes coming up because sometimes the tears don't come and you have to be fine with that, that they're not going to necessarily come and not to force it. Because I think you can really, sometimes you can really tell when something's forced. And also you can convey emotions in so many different ways. The problem is, is when you've kind of, you've made a choice, you know, and you're crying on one take and then the t- <laughs> you're kind of, there's no more tears left in the tank. <laughs> and you're, yeah, you really have to, it's a kind of that skill of trying to navigate um, when when to do that? Whether you know, because you've got a close, you've got your close ups, you've got your wides. You, it's knowing when to, I guess, not save that moment, but it's you have lots of opportunities to express yourself in different ways through that, and and I and I guess it's in the edit as well, um, what they choose to show, and but they're all they are always really daunting. I always find those scenes really daunting. Me too. I, I've all, you know for for a long time. I gave myself a really hard time about doing crying scenes and it was actually something I worried about. Mm-hmm. I was like, if you're an actor, you, one of the things you should be able to do is is cry on cue. Um, and if you can't, you feel like a bit of a phony. You, you feel like uh, you're not really good enough. Um, and I've always been very envious of those actors that can seemingly turn the waterworks mm-hmm. on at the flick of a switch. But I made the decision a few years ago, boy, just to, just to stop worrying about it, to stop worrying about having to get the tears out because – that's not what's interesting, mm. really. Uh, if if you cry, you cry. If you don't, you don't. It's the emotion that underpins it, which is the thing which is important. And actually, a lot of the time, you know, when when you when you cry in real life, you're trying not to. So that that's always what I remind myself is like I try and sort of play a game with myself. I'm like, just try not to cry. Really try not to mm. cry. That's almost move, more moving to watch. When you see someone trying to control their emotions, that's better than seeing an actor obviously quite relishing the fact that they're able to get the tears going, you know? Mm. And I can tell that now. I can watch actors and go, you're enjoying that. <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely right, yeah. And they're like, restart a peak of emotion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to go from there as but the other thing to say is it's still really funny. I mean, it's absolutely hilarious. Brilliant dialogue. Is it also striking this is part of a kind, possibly a movement with Ted Lasso, the other Apple TV comedy, I don't know if you both watched, of a very kind of heartwarming, sincere kind of comedy. Do you know what I mean? It feels like comedy that's not afraid to show emotion and to have kind of quite profound message, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I guess it's, you know, it's it's what's great about it is it's that, you know, having that vulnerability and... Um, and also finding that you know the humour with that, and not being afraid to let those those two live in the same space, and that's what's great about this show is that they you know they are two vulnerable characters going through a vulnerable process, 
but they find the humor in that and whether they're trying to make each other laugh or they're just in a situation that is just slightly ridiculous and comic like the situation that Jason finds himself in in the in the shop with the with the saw and the the rope and the um, which is just ridiculous and also it's just so funny because they realize that they feel like they've gone a bit mad because they want something so much and that comedy comes from the vulnerability of two characters just wanting to get this child and um, I think it's so clever how Andy does that and how Andy writes that and it's never making light of the serious subject matter it's just bringing a lightness to it I think a really good definition definition of comedy, which which um, I think probably pertains to it, most comedies ever made, is it, it's it's someone setting out to do a task that they're ill-equipped to do, right? Mm-hmm. That's always going to be funny, always. Uh, and th- this is absolutely the case with these two. They're ill-equipped to uh, to ad- adopt a kid, um, technically, um, in theory. But we know what we can see as an audience. We're going to actually. They might not have money. They might not um, have a fancy house, fancy jobs, or um, come from uh, privileged backgrounds, but they're good people for all of their fallibility, for all of their failings, for all of the, in all of the ways that they're ill-equipped to achieve this task that they're set out to do. We know that they're still lovely. We know that they're still good. We know that they deserve it. Um, so those two things together, you've got the pathos and the comedy, you know? You're going, well, we yeah. know that they can't do it. But we love them for it, and that pulls at your heartstrings, um, and that to me also is is reflective of life. That's that's my experience of life, is that you that you get you get comedy and tragedy exist in the everyday, um, and uh, laughing and uh, is it releases endorphins in tragic situations. That's that's just that's just human, and I think that the show does a really good job of of sort of uh, embodying that energy. Finally, the great scene where you're in this very big house with very rich people, they don't have a TV, and you both want at no TV people, no TV people, the absolute the earth, I think one of those. <laughs> you the that message. Yeah, I think it's an important message. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, one person doesn't have a TV. Sort of, if someone says to you, I don't have a TV, what they're saying to you is, I'm probably a better person than you. Um, but, you know... I think it's different now because everyone's TVs, their laptops, right? It's like uh, people consume TV in a different way. Um, but yeah, man, don't don't show off about the fact you haven't got a telly. Uh, it's it, yeah, it, yeah. Anyway, okay, I was just about to say some more offensive things about people, then, <laughs> but I uh, poured back on it, and I'm going to give myself a pat on the back. <laughs> Thank you so much, um, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. That was Rafe Spall and Esther Smith, and time now for this week's news. Who would like to start with news this week? Loki's going to be on a Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. Loki is going to be on a Wednesday. That is true. That's thrown my week into chaos for the Loki spoiler specials we're and doing. that was the first thing that was on Tom Hiddleston's yeah, I think they're doing deliberately to annoy you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So inconvenient. He's the god of mischief. So. I am curious. Obviously... Well, we the expectation was because both WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier were both on a Friday, um, and we all presumed it mm. would continue. And I've been trying to kind of think about why. Why is it Wednesday? And maybe it's just why? Wednesday. 
<laughs> yes. Perhaps there's no hidden meaning. Yeah. And well, it's just a scheduling um, decision. The Star Wars, the new batch arrived on a Wednesday, didn't it? I think. Didn't it? Or even maybe a Tuesday. It's only. Yeah. It, we've know made we've watched it. Yeah, we obviously <laughs> didn't watch it. Um, so I wonder whether that did so well on a midweek launch that they decided to change their mind or something. And I think they do, it's just a way of differentiating yeah. from Netflix, isn't it? Because pretty much all, all of Netflix offerings arrive on a Friday, except the ones they're really embarrassed about. That's how you know <laughs> they're really embarrassed, because when they arrive on a Wednesday, they really get they, 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 they don't like reminding us of its existence. But their documentary series arrive on a Wednesday, and the um, all the scripted stuff, the good, decent, they think, Decent, worthy scripted stuff arrives on a Friday, and I just think that the the all the streaming services have to find different ways. It's partly why I think they don't let you binge on stuff as well on Disney Plus. So that Loki will be weekly, won't it? Every week, mm-hmm. um, again to differentiate itself from Netflix to mm. some extent. Yeah, I must say I'm not I'm not upset that it's going to be Wednesday. I guess it means that I'll spoil a special for it can go up the same week that it airs, which is nice. <laughs> you do know uh, this otherwise isn't like Friday, can't do that, a but, work uh, meeting. You know this isn't like a, a stuff trap. <laughs> I'm just I'm just musing. I'm just musing. <laughs> Thinking out loud. What can I tell you? <laughs> the news the news has turned into scheduling scheduling for James. Scheduling of Pilot TV slash yeah. Empire content. Yes. Yeah. It's <laughs> brilliant. I, I mean, I think I wonder also if, and I'm sure this isn't it, but I think it's fair to say that a lot of people were underwhelmed by Falcon. Um, We've talked about it on on this podcast. Um, And although it it landed some things right, I think overall it it didn't quite meet people's expectations. And obviously WandaVision was a stormer and was seen as being incredibly innovative and exciting and and quite radical in many respects. Um, So I think, you know, I'm sure a a completely clean as possible slate is wanted for Loki. And there does seem to be, I have to say, out of all Mm. of them, it's the one where I sense a huge amount of excitement and anticipation that character is so fascinates so many people and i tonally from what we've seen before we've obviously only just seen that that small teaser um it, it looks like what you'd be hoping for we'll obviously have to see when we get full episodes but um uh i think loki may save the day yeah, I think there's a yes. sense that it's going to be fun at the very least, isn't it? Like really, you know, I think that, which I don't think there was that sense necessarily about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier in the end. Mm. Um, there's loads of interesting Netflix news this week, though. Like the Irregulars axed after one season. Yeah, interesting. It's no very winks. interesting. It's no winks. It's no winks. <laughs> Um, I mean, we weren't like it wasn't. It's not great. It has I didn't to be mind so. it. It didn't was mind fine, it, but fine. Clearly, fine isn't enough necessarily even for, for Netflix. Um, and at the same time, they dropped the Stranger Things um, teaser trailer. Yes, which, I haven't seen that yet. Is it good? Oh, uh, it's really good. It's really good. It's, it's a teaser. It's a teaser trailer, but it's a very effective little little one. You've got and you've got Martin Brenner, the Matthew Modin character from season one, voice uh, as uh, arriving. Did you say Martin Brennan. Uh, Martin Brenner. Because <laughs> I was about Not to say because that that is a crossover. I would be that would be 100% amazing here for. I'm totally. <laughs> that would be brilliant. Um, and Eleven's in some kind of. Um, like kind of uh, institution, she's locked up. It was. I thought it was a really effective reminder that Stranger Things is a very exciting show. Um, but we uh, we should talk about uh, Rufus Jones' tweet from last night. That yeah. is gutting. Yeah. No season three of Home. No, how did yeah. I miss this? Yeah, it was last night. It got cancelled. Yeah. <gasps> yeah, that really sad. is fucking criminal. I don't know what's happening with Channel Four and comedy at the moment. It's weird because they didn't—they—they're not involved in Feel Good series too. Yes, yeah, Netflix, isn't um, it? That's a pure Netflix show now. 
Yeah. Um, Did he give any hint that someone might no. rescue it? No. No. That's yeah, and that's that's yeah, shocking. It's, that's it's, such it, a good show. That yeah. one truly baffles me. Really does. But then, the, as you say, boy, the feel good thing um, was interesting because obviously that was a co pro before, wasn't it? And now it's it's completely one hundred percent. Netflix, yeah. um, and obviously he was very keen from what I saw to to do another series, and it was critically. I can't were the viewing figures decent. I think the viewing figures were decent. You know, not not amazing, but you know, I think yeah. Channel Four, very few Channel Four comedies are amazing. You know, I think so. Yeah, it, it was it was shocking. Yeah, I, I can't try to think of the explanation. I th- I don't know. Yeah, it, it all comes down to kind of weird executives deciding mm. things for whatever reason. I don't know, and, and I get budgets have been massively COVID. affected by it. COVID. I think I did remember reading that Channel Four had been affected a lot um, by COVID and all of that. Yeah, uh, but it's a real shame. Game Face, you know, Game Face. I don't think that I don't think it's been officially axed, but I don't think it's been officially renewed. Either. Yeah, it's, it's been another, a while, hasn't it? Yeah, that's heard, another really good that. show. That I think has been. Mm-hmm. They haven't exactly gone. Yeah, let's let's redo. Let's have another series of that. It's, it is baffling. Something else that I found on Twitter last night, though, was that uh, at least we now know what uh, Anna Maxwell Martin is going to be doing oh, next. Yeah. Uh, she and Rachel Sterling are playing sisters in Sophie Petzl's new crime drama, Hollington Drive, on ITV. I mean, that, yeah, and that, is, that's, that was funny because Sophie Petzl was tweeting about how she's had to, obviously she's known this fact that, that um, Aaron Maxwell Martin, Carl Michael, is, been, is in her next show and she's had to keep quiet about it while everyone bangs on about how incredible Aaron Maxwell Martin is, which she is, <laughs> and Motherland, which we'll talk about soon as well. Do you know when it's airing? Uh, I don't, I think... Not for a while, I think, but I don't know, to be honest. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, two bits of casting for the original Bell End Fest succession, <laughs> Adrian Brody yes. and uh, Alexander Skarsgård. Are you excited, Boyd? I, I, I'm just excited. I just want I just want succession to arrive tomorrow, please. Yeah. yeah it's I mean, so fantastic. Adrian, both Adrian Brody and uh, Alexander Skarsgård will presumably be playing Bell Ends of some description on this particular so. show. I'm yeah, excited um, yeah. to start yeah. succession. Yeah. But that's fine. I've decided that's my next. Yes, that's my next big binge. You will love it. I'm still on the lookout for my new West Wing, so I'm I'm putting my hands in in um, Boyd's hands. My hands in Boyd's hands. My future in Boyd's hands. I'm going in for Succession. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're going to love it. Love it. I'm going to rewatch it. That's another show that will bear rewatching. Bell ends abound. Yeah. I made it five episodes into that show before having to stop. That is really annoying because I think off, from the top, off the top of my head, episode six is the one that where it goes spectacularly brilliant. No, but, no, that's it. No, no, no. Whatever it was. I'm sure, was it five or six? Either way, I watched up to the one that you told me uh, okay. was the one that would suck me in right. and it didn't, no, so I stopped. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, this is a matter of refuses to watch The Office. So. Also true. Also true. Do we have any other news? Um, Strange um, things, no. Loki, Adrian Brody. No. There was a first image from House of the Dragon. Oh, fuck yeah. I did um, have that on my list. Yeah. I, I think I wrote, um, uh, James bangs on about Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes, we got uh, Emma Darcy uh, as Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen and Matt Smith as Prince Damon Targaryen. It was quite exciting. There's also a picture of Olivia Cook in there. She's a high tower, and Risa Fans as another high tower. So fun. Really, it's just people standing on beaches. That's what this was. Yeah. People standing on beaches. It looks like um, it looks like June meets labyrinth. 
dune yes, meets it labyrinth. Yeah, it does. You're right. Yeah, there was well, because a, was... they're on a beach. They're uh, yeah. Sand, yeah. so it's basically dune. and yeah. it's labyrinth because one of them <laughs> yeah. has long blonde hair. Yeah, you understand Bad how something hair, right? looking like okay. something Bad else works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it looks like that, right? Because that looks like that, and that looks like that. Yes, that's how looking like something works. <laughs> right. Good to know. Good to know. They did also confirm, I think, for the first time, it's definitely happening next year on Sky Atlantic. Um, it's arriving 2022. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we can Mayans MC has been renewed for a fourth season at FX. I'm very excited about that, even though we're still waiting for Mayans season three to come over here. <laughs> Terry couldn't give a shit, but uh, that's good news. That's good news. Like a bit of Mayans. Um, I think that is broadly speaking it for news, unless someone has some other bombshell they wish to drop. No? Okay, no. fine. Well, in that case, let's move on to the reviews. And I guess this week we should start with Jupiter's Legacy, uh, the embargo for which has finally expired. This Netflix series, of course, is based on the Mark Miller comics, uh, which is a group of superheroes preparing to, I guess, pass the super baton to the next generation, only to discover their super kids have somewhat different ideas of how to be a hero than they do. Uh, Boyd, was this worth the extra week wait? No. <laughs> I mean... Oh dear! I really wanted to like it. I really did. I didn't. I don't take pleasure in not liking a show. But for me, this is a show, right? About it's about superheroes. It's about the first generation superheroes played by Josh Duhamel with terrible aging makeup and hair, and <laughs> just it just looks just that creative decision instantly feels wrong because it it just feels like so wiggy. You know what I mean? It feels like you can. It's very wiggy. So mm. wiggy. So that immediately takes you out of it, and that's like. Scene one, no, don't like the way they look, doesn't convince me, it feels fake and kind of plasticky. Um, then it's the kind of show that people who don't like superhero things on like on principle, because they think the world's been taken over by superhero films and TV and it's all wrong and anything to do with superheroes is instantly, you know, being snobbish about it and it's not. But this show is what they're talking about <laughs> because this show is like, you know, the, it's like Watchmen, The Boys, Umbrella Academy and indeed Invincible, but nowhere near as good as any of those things. So it just feels like this mishmash of things we've seen so many times before. And of course, every, I mean, every Marvel film, TV show there is, that, that's a given. Um, it's such a mishmash of all these things. And I don't feel there's any original point it's making or any original idea or any original character. Um, and, and I guess the whole, the, the, the big theme of it is an older, older people who are superheroes and the younger people are difficult to keep hold of and they don't want to, follow the rules that are being set for them, particularly by Josh Duhamel's character within his family. Um, he wants They, they want to make sure that no one ever gets killed and there's no violence in their version of superheroism. But all of that stuff is dealt with in every Batman film. You know, that the, you know, the idea of vigilantism and how violent you can be as a superhero, every single Batman thing ever invented is dealt with that issue. And it's discussed on almost every other superhero film and TV show as well. So that's not original. Then there's this split timeline uh, where half the series is like t in flashback and you can tell which timelines which because they're in different aspect ratios, which I normally like. But the only interesting thing for me about the old um, timeline set in the late 20s, early 30s, um, kind of depression era stuff, which is giving you the origin story effectively of Joshua, Josh Dumel's character and his, his family and friends, is that it, 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 and it seems pointless. I don't understand. Like so far, after two, I've only watched two episodes. That storyline isn't interesting either. So you've got two 
split storylines, one in the present day, one in the past, neither of which are very interesting. Everything is very is incredibly fake and wiggy and the dialogue is boring, just boring. It's not it's neither it's not it's not particularly terrible it's just dull it's just not, not even heightened hardly so there's no wit to it there's no humor it takes itself incredibly seriously which for a mark miller thing i was astonished about that from the creative kick-ass you yeah. know which whatever you think about it was at least you know had a wry comedy to it this is so po-faced josh dumel so i know he interviewed him i'm sure he's lovely but he's, he spends his entire performance like whispering this kind of like very serious whisper everything i say is so important um and interesting and significant and, oh my god it was i just i was so bored by it oh sorry <laughs> I'm really sorry. Terry, let's hear your five-star review as a counterpoint um, well, to Boyd's No Saying. Say, and it's, it's not often you'll hear me say this, that um, your review, James Dyer reviewed this for Empire, um, and your review is quite on the money, uh, James. I, I think you've been generous with the stars. We gave it three stars, which is a recommendation. <laughs> but the point you make and, and that Boyd just made about how seriously this takes itself is quite something because there's a real mismatch as Boyd says you open up and it's like a Josh Jamal in, in not entirely convincing um, prosthetics and uh, wiggy and it's also kind of uh, absurd that I was expecting then an absurdity in the tone and in the storytelling that you really follow through on that fake look and and that's kind of the point and then it doesn't and it is incredibly earnest really the two storyline thing doesn't work some of I, I mean I, I wasn't bored by both of them like Boyd was the modern day present day scenes are definitely a little bit more compelling the the derivative point is an important one and obviously, you know, Mark wrote this some time ago, and I, 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 I haven't read the original source material, but I've read a few things which have speculated there's a bit of a gap between what he wrote and obviously this. Um, he was involved in the Netflix production, obviously, but it it does feel derivative, and that's because of the world we live in today, right? So we live in a world where we do have Umbrella Academy and we do have boys. And however you feel about those shows and, and Umbrella Academy, I think, lacked coherence at times. But Boys was bold and funny and balls out and took loads of risks and felt really modern and contemporary. This didn't feel modern and contemporary. Um, I think, you know, people have talked about people involved with the show have talked about this being an evolution of this genre it isn't. It's kind of like a going backwards and, and touching on bits here and, and, and bits there, but it doesn't have anything new or interesting to say. So things like generational conflict, things like um, the moral ambiguity, the ethical ambiguity that goes along with being a superhero, that goes along with inheriting the mantle, that what does justice look like? What shouldn't it look like? Is violence ever justified? All of those things have been at the heart of superheroes since the beginning of time and have been explored in the likes of Batman since the beginning of time and are, you know, can be done really well and really interestingly, but that isn't really the case here. So the grounds they're covering, even in kind of the relationships between the characters, just doesn't feel new or compelling or fresh. I will say... um uh, Elena Camporis, I hope I'm saying her name right. Elena Camporis, I, for me, I found her 
She at least, I found her compelling. She plays um, the daughter, Chloe. Something about her, she's a bit of a pain in the arse. And, you know, but she, I found something about her character. You know, Andrew Horton, I think, is meant to actually be the focus of the story as the paragon, but I, I feel like he has barely enough to do, actually. And yeah, I just, I, I really struggled through this. And I just think from where we are now, the world, whether it's in film or TV, that has exploded around the genre. And to Boyd's point, that has become, you know, there's a lot of criticism these days around superhero outings and about what they do and about kind of, you know, how many of them there are. And I think this doesn't feel to me like a essential addition to the genre at all. I mean, yeah. I liked it more than either of you did, clearly. Um, but I do get what you're saying. I think I think the thing with the show is everything you say is is true. The f- it, it starts badly. I mean, there's no getting around it. It just starts badly. And I think there's a combination of factors at work there. I think, first of all, it takes a while for it to find its feet. There are eight episodes of this, and I didn't enjoy the first one at all. Uh, and the second one I enjoyed or disliked slightly less. And then, weirdly, it won me over. And by the end, I was actually quite enjoying it. So this sucked me in. I did give the three stars as a result of that. But I think the decision decision to use the same casting for the origin story in the present day was perhaps a creative error. And I think, because the problem is that the, the, the A storyline here, the main storyline, you essentially have all of the main characters, Leslie Bibb, Josh Dumel, you know, Matt Lance, all these people in panto prosthetics. Like they are all wearing like stick on wrinkles. It's very wiggy, a lot of gravies, lots of awful, awful sort of spirit gum stick on gray beards as well. Like it, I mean, it looks absurd and that's the bulk of the show and that's a problem so like you think well actually like had they cast different people had they cast you know josh duman lever as the younger people and then brought in an older cast to play them more? i think it's a show that then you'd be able to take more seriously because the problem is this show takes itself as we said very seriously and you cannot take yourself that seriously maybe that po-faced if you're going to look like people should be shouting he's behind you every five minutes you know what I mean that's it doesn't work the visual is too absurd and bear in mind the costumes which are very Alex Ross they're very classic DC really really sort of like um, flamboyant costumes you've got flamboyant costumes silly wigs stick on beards and yet a show that takes itself very seriously and that certainly early on is a real barrier and was for me as well i think the benefit with watching more episodes was that you become used to it you become acclimatized to that visual and it no longer jars as much and once you can get past that there's actually some decent stuff in the show i think the origin story which is set in the 1930s and i think heavily inspired i think mark miller said by the original king kong where they're going on this quest and they're searching for their powers that's actually really compelling and it's really fun and i really enjoyed the way that kind of played out i thought again from a visual point of view had great spectacle to it and i thought that adventure storyline was great and then you keep flipping back to the present day where you've got the kind of family drama and then weirdly the least compelling part of this show which is the mystery of who's behind this new villain uh and we're i could really care about that stuff but i did i enjoyed the stuff with with chloe who as you said is elena camporis uh who is his uh the utopian slightly troubled daughter and i enjoyed the stuff with uh with his son as well brandon who's the kind of paragon but trying to live up to that title and indeed being the son of the utopian i thought that was quite fun as well and i know what you mean like it doesn't say a whole lot new about the genre and struggling with you know with great power comes great responsibility this is baked into this genre it's not a new thing to talk about but i enjoyed the friction 
friction between the golden age of comics kind of sensibilities and more contemporary storytelling. Like, because I, I, I always go back to the fact that there were so many of these DC stands were up in arms when Snyder had Batman and Superman killing the shit out of hundreds of people. Two characters who do not ever kill under any circumstances. And I've argued with them on, on Empire about this endlessly. Because I'm like, for fuck's sake, if Batman had killed the Joker from the offset, his life would have been a hell of a lot easier. It's just a simple, it's a simple bit of practicality. And Amon's like, no, no, Batman doesn't do that. I'm like, he's the Dark Knight. His whole thing is being edgy. Uh, but anyway, this is another conversation. So I enjoyed that friction there, the way that Sheldon is incapable of bending. He's incapable of reviewing his code and his approach. And even looking back, bearing in mind that these heroes have been doing this for 100 years, looking back on their legacy, a century-long legacy where they have moved the needle not one inch. They've not had any tangible real impact on American society or improved life for people beyond foiling petty crimes. And the point is, maybe now's the time to reevaluate that. And I thought that was a nice thing. So it's looking back on their legacy, looking at their approach, and him being that classic figure who cannot change and is incapable of change, um, and how his, you know, his supergroup is kind of torn apart as a result of that. So I, I found there was quite a lot to chew on here. I quite enjoyed it. You know, is this a masterpiece? No, it's clearly not. Uh, and The Boys is much, much better because The Boys is funny. It's, it's hugely oh, I mean, I enjoyable. I should, I should take back every criticism I ever made of The Boys. And, you and should I'm never bro- criticise The Boys. It's fucking brilliant. I know. I went back and I really enjoyed it and I, and I got over that. But our Umbrella yes. Academy, I feel like any criticism I've made of Umbrella Academy, this is... Uh, uh, I think to say it's no... I, I mean, you've watched the whole thing. To, I've, I have, only, yes. But, and it, gets, I mean, it does, does get better, but it's never, it, it it never it becomes great. It becomes decent, but it never becomes great. And I think, you know, to what we were saying earlier, Invincible covers very similar ground in parts of this and in some ways does do it better because, you know, take the medium of animation out of it, but they nail the tone. It doesn't take yeah. itself seriously. It's yeah. profound and witty. You know, they managed to do that. And I think this is a show based on a comic, and if you read what Mark Miller said about the comic, you know, that had very lofty aspirations you know Mark Miller thought it would be the godfather of superhero stories and and that's fine but it isn't you know but strip all that out of it and there's still there's still stuff to enjoy here I think anyway Jimmy's Legacy can be viewed now on Netflix (laughs) should you feel the need next up we have the Underground Railroad. This is Barry Jenkins' adaptation of the Carlson Whitehead novel depicting an alternate history in which two people, Cora and Caesar, escape slavery on a southern plantation and make a bid for freedom via the Underground Railroad, which in this instance is quite literally that. Terry, tell us about this one. Right. This is a fucking extraordinary <laughs> bit of television. My God. Um Oh, where to begin? Where to begin? Right. So from the minute this opens, episode one, from the very first shot, which, by the way, completely took my breath away, you know you are in Barry Jenkins' world. And let me tell you, there's been lots to talk about. Oh, Barry Jenkins doing telly. Why would Barry Jenkins? Blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Like, (laughs) the world he creates... It's his universe. It's his cinematic universe. I would watch him on anything. It doesn't matter. But the, it, what he creates in this is on a par, I think, with Moonlight, with anything else he's done. It, the way it shimmers, it's luminous, the way he composes each shot. And you can tell that he partners with the two people he partners with on on kind of all of his things. So James Laxton, who's the cinematographer, Nicholas Brattel, the composer, but I mean, the 
the look of this and the sound of this is absolutely vital. Those two men both work with him on Moonlight and Beale Street. Um, as you say, this is an adaptation of sorts of Wholesome Whitehead's novel, which is about a kind of a... Um, it, it refers to a network of safe houses that escaped slaves um, could use when they were fleeing. But actually, the genius, and this is kind of sets out his stall for the treatment, is that he makes, Barry Jenkins makes the decision to make this a literal underground railroad, which runs under the ground and, and, and under the soil on which these terrible, terrible, horrific things are happening. Um, he did, Jenkins directed all 10 episodes. He either wrote or co-wrote several. Um, and this is Im- impossibly hard to watch, as you'd imagine, something that depicted the reality of slavery is. But also not just that. It's absolutely, entirely beautiful, which is partly because of the cinematic approach that that they take, um, partly this in- incredible epic score, um, but also that there's a there's a, a both there's a blending of realism and sensitivity in how how Jenkins deals with this material. So it's set in this alternate 19th century southeastern United States, that first episode basically setting up what the slaves are fleeing from. So the story focuses on um, Cora, played by Tucson Bedo, and she is a teenage slave on a plantation in Georgia. Um, and this plantation is as kind of horrific as you'd expect it to be. We see slaves being brutally whipped and flayed as their skin comes off beaten there's this really shocking scene which actually plays out really cleverly against this lunch there's a luncheon happening on the lawn outside of the house and a slave who had previously um fled and been captured is punished publicly and in front of the other slaves as a warning for what happens if you do try and escape and the juxtaposition of this um, laughing and the kind of the the passive cruelty of these white people who watch this happen is really really something else but there is nothing in this which feels like sh- gratuitous shock for shock's sake everything is done with intent every scene of brutality is done for a very specific reason to show a specific truth. And I think there's been a lot of debate recently, um, especially after the show of the likes of them, about whether there's exploitation of black pain and suffering in certain shows and in certain films. But this really feels like it's showing a reality, but then also showing at the same time a beauty in life as well. Um and essentially, Cora is um, endures a lot on this plantation. She'd been left by her mother, who had escaped, the only slave who'd been esca- who'd escaped and never been caught. And this leads to this belief of this mythical underground railroad. And, and I say mythical deliberately because this, as the series continues, it also gets into magical realism. There's a kind of time shifting. This isn't a straight kind of linear narrative telling of this it's it's way more kind of interesting and innovative than that and as such you know all of the episodes are of different lengths it's kind of all done in the surface of the exact story that Jenkins wants to tell 
Um, also, this is Joel Edgerton. He is absolutely brilliant as a slave catcher called Ridgeway. And what's really interesting about what Jenkins does is there is a very easy villainous caricature of this guy whose job is to do, you know, this incredibly awful thing. But he makes him a kind of a flesh and blood human being, which in a way makes it even more challenging and more difficult. Uh, there are certainly are, I suppose, villains who are um, very recognisably evil bad guys in this, uh, most notably the, the plantation owner. But also he's really careful to show that these were real human beings doing incredibly evil things, but human all the same. And the basic setup is he's trying to catch Cora, who does escape with Caesar, played by Aaron Pierre. But actually what happens over the series is is they visit a different place um, across America and they learn things and, and we learn things about America as they go. Like, I just... I was absolutely fucking blown away by this. It, I just thought it was impeccably done every shot the score the way the sound design is done in moments of pain and suffering and 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 just the way it's used when actually there's a moment of freedom or the prospect of hope and optimism it is absolute meticulous craft and storytelling it is one of the most brutal and beautiful things i have ever seen in my life and i just think this is completely on a different level than a lot of things we ever talk about and I, I it just absolutely cements Barry Jenkins as one of the most utterly remarkable filmmakers working in any medium quite frankly at the moment um it isn't without challenge and it quite frankly should be if it's dealing with what it's dealing with but it's just a top to toe from the very first second an incredible piece of work and an incredible piece of television. Yes, uh, I agree. Um, I have to say, I think it's hard, isn't it? Because there's so there are a lot of um, you mentioned them. Um, it did make me think a lot of Twelve Years a Slave, Stephen McQueen's film. Um, a little bit visually, a little bit of the look of it. I suppose that anything set on a southern plantation with slaves, and you know, there, but there were certain moments. That, there's a sequence where there's the, the, the horrific sequence you talked about, where we're also they're having dinner, they're having lunch, while this thing happens. The white um, slave owners are kind of gathering for a jolly old lunch while this horrendous violence is occurring. That 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 felt very, very much like a Steve McQueen thing in twelve in tw and twelve years of slave. But then I think so to start with, and I was like, oh my god, this is just so distressing and difficult. Um, and then it gets it kind of gets more difficult actually and distressing as the first episode goes on. But then, but the poetry of it and the the kind of the incredible visuals and the music, as you say, and the incredibly soulful performances and the way he photographs the faces of the characters, Toussaint Beidou's face, Aaron Pierre, who is a you know British South London guy, you know, brilliant um, theatre actor, uh, plays this incredibly soulful character. Um, I keep using that word self. I've got to find a different word, but that but that is what he is. It's just the filmmaking is absolutely incredible, isn't it? It's like we're we kind of, we're kind of getting used to incredible filmmaking in TV, but this does feel like on another level. Like every shot from the very beginning to the end is like been thought through. Um, it, it's telling the story. It's showing the character. It's just um, and so 
it just feels like an incredible achievement instantly almost, yeah, after the first episode. But I think it's really, but I think what's really going to keep people watching it, because that first episode has to set up the absolute, obviously, perverse, disgusting grimness of slavery. And that is a narrative and a, and a thing we've seen that's been seen quite rightly before. But what? But when you get to the end of the first episode and when the Underground Railway comes into effect, this mythical thing, as you say, and then I watched episode two and I'm like, oh, so this is, this is like an odyssey um, in this alternate timeline, this alternate version of the American South and of racism and of slavery. That's when it gets absolutely fascinating and unique and, and different. And so by the end of episode two, I'm like, oh my God, I've got to watch the whole thing. And I, I believe Amazon is making the whole thing available um, in one go, which it doesn't do all the, with everything now. But I think this is going to be a thing you, you, you'll need to watch and consume and digest and think about at your own pace and is, is an absolutely incredible achievement, Yeah, even after just two episodes. I would love to tell you how much I love this, but my screener links to this arrived while we were recording oh. this podcast so it's literally it came into my inbox at ten twenty-five this morning so unfortunately i have yet to see it uh, although given how traumatic it sounds i'm not sure that i maybe have the stomach for it but it does sound very good indeed um that is of course uh airing on amazon prime from friday the 14th of may uh, and also out this week we have Domina, a show that takes us to ancient rome in about 35 bc to the house of livia drusilla daughter of Sir Davos Seaworth, uh, and who would one day be wife to Augustus Caesar. Boyd, tell us more about this. What's Sir Davos been getting up to? Sir Davos has been getting up to, um, he's kind of quite a, he's a, seems a decent guy. He's, he's very much um, deals with his daughter very well played. So this is an epic um, uh, Roman story that's going to play out over, I think, eight episodes, and it's going to cover a lot of period of time. So uh, in the early episodes, the character of Livia, who is the focal point of the whole show, is played by Nadia Parks from The Spanish Princess. But later on, she'll be played by another um, actress. So there's kind of different actresses at different stages of these people's lives. As In, in this first episode, she's quite young, um, and she's kind of dealing with her dad. She's being she's she's um, she's forced to marry this other dude who's kind of an older guy who's intensely irritating um, <laughs> and uh, a massive bell end, and he's horrible. Um, he's actually not horrible to her. He's just kind of like it's. A, it felt like a very authentic depiction of what you know what, what you'd end up if you had to have an arranged marriage in this in this yeah. situation. He's not a monster, but equally, it's like oh, he's 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 definitely um, distinctly unpleasant and selfish and self absorbed and all those things. Um, she uh, so we can It's all about this. So I think the whole kind of idea of this series is. An ancient Roman, an epic ancient Roman narrative of the kind of which we have seen before in various things, Rome, the HBO show, mm. Britannia, the Sky Show, touches on similar things, but very much seen through the eyes of women. So very much seen through the eyes of um, Livia, particularly, um, and other uh, and, uh, and other women in her world. Um, and do you know what? To start with, I haven't. I wouldn't. I would say I haven't been looking forward to this like massively. You know, I've been told about it, it's coming up and the, and the you know been set the promotional information and um and, and the trailer watched the trailer and i'm like does the world really need another roman story you know do i really need another roman story kind of in a similar way to the superhero thing do you know there haven't been as many roman roman tv series as there have been superhero ones but you know some ways not far off but you know what i really really enjoyed it and i think it was the sun it, it, what it is it's the it's the kind of um it's the 
It's the way the show is trying to be authentic in showing you the grim realities of what life would have been like back in the Roman era. That's partly why I think makes it very interesting and entertaining. There's a lot of toilet stuff going on. There's a lot of <laughs> shitting and pissing, frankly. And, you know, perhaps more than one would expect, you know, even in the first episode, there's a hell of a lot of that going there is. on. Um, but I quite, but you know, and conversations being ha happening while all this is going on, while people's bodily fluids are having working their way through, you know, people having there's a pee break in the woods that seems yeah. rather superfluous right. to the storyline. Exactly, but I think what it is, it's trying to show. Well, you know, this is what it would actually would have been like, and you've got kind of like quite kind of snotty almost like late teen early 20 something it's kind of plotting huge big events that are going to basically impact upon the whole history of the roman empire and i thought that was very interesting as well and halfway through i suddenly realized why i was enjoying it so much it's basically i claudius for the 21st century <laughs> and i claudius is was one of the formative shows of my of my youth i was only barely i think 10 maybe when i watched i claudius and that was completely inappropriate for a 10 year old i claudius deals in you know perverse sex um you know uh, caligula everything that caligula did the ridiculous things he did were portrayed quite explicitly in i claudius for a thing that went out in 1976 or whatever on the bbc um it had everything sex violence um incest you know it was all there and it was done in such a witty way and so brilliantly cast and it was so relentlessly entertaining that i absolutely loved every minute of it and i think this feels like They've gone. Simon Burke, who created it, who wrote Fortitude, Scott, which was which I also really enjoyed when it was on Sky. I think my feeling is he's gone. Why don't we try and do a kind of I Claudius style thing that's that doesn't take itself that seriously, that's very entertaining, but but using the, the you know what we have now, sophisticated filmmaking techniques, CGI, etc., can can afford to be much more meticulous with its depiction of what actually life would have been like back then, and at the same time have loads of gratuitous sex, violence, swearing pissing, shitting, and all of that. And I really enjoyed it. I get the sense, possibly, Terry didn't. <laughs> Do you know what? I really enjoyed it as well. I'm a big fan of Rome. Like, Rome was a show that I adored when it was on. And, you know, and I made my way through at least two seasons of the Spartacus show. I love a bit of Roman Empire drama. I really do. And they all tend to be... Weirdly, though, I said that there was less uh, nakedity in this than there often are in these Roman shows, which actually was a nice change. But, um, yeah, but a I lot thought of shagging. It was, a lot of shagging. There's just, a decent yeah. amount of shagging, but it's not quite as explicit. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, as you say, like uh, Kessia Smutniak is going to take over in one the later episodes as Livia, but Nadia Parks does an excellent job as young Livia, uh, and I, I, you know, I, I enjoyed the, the setup of the first episode. Obviously, nicely Liam Cunningham in anything, but uh, I like the idea of it, and I, I don't know an awful lot about Roman history after the fall of Julius Caesar and the kind of struggles between re-establishing, you know, a dictatorship versus you know the nascent republic that they were trying to sort of fight for, uh, and it's interesting the politics of it. I found interesting as well as the backstory stabbing and the double dealing and as you say these sort of essentially teenagers plotting the mass murder of senators um yeah i, I i'm definitely going to watch more of this i thought it was great and i like the fact that we're seeing it from her point of view because it's it's a slightly different perspective i know absolutely nothing about livia drusilla but uh i yeah i'm looking forward to seeing all of this play out and i'm looking forward specifically to seeing it play out through her eyes uh, i think it's a lovely perspective i think it's really well well rendered i mean do I need to see yet another teenage girl have her virginity taken by a much older man in a really awkward scene in which they no don't even begin to depict how painful it is to have sex for the first time when you're clearly still a child? But I just, I'm, oh, all of this 
no, no, I don't, I don't, I'm like, no. What was it we watched the other week? And Michelangelo, Babalangelo. Leonardo. I, I, <laughs> these are not my bag or my speed. Oh, look, there's a th- pig having its throat slit. There's a woman being de-virginized. Does she consent? Does it matter? I mean, she kind of has to, but we all have to at some point, don't we? And, and anyway, what's sex in relationships other than an unequal That is a really grim between, scene. Not as grim mm. as it like would be, really. It's just like, and part, and she's doe-eyed and beautiful, and it's, oh, I don't know, it all feels a bit titillating, and, and I just, I did, did this did not grab me or compel me, and I, I it is not for me. Thank you. Really, I think that aspect of it, having in the middle of a Game of Thrones rewatch, I think I'm a little desensitized to it because it's done so horrifically in Game of Thrones that it seemed it's still it's still a very distasteful scene in this. But as you're right, it is a slightly sanitized. I don't scene. need to see a a very no, beautiful doe-eyed teenage girl lose her no. virginity to a a fifty-something-year-old man wearing yeah, a wig. It's, like it's t- <laughs> that's just not something i need to see again and again and again I mean, and it's really hard to do without it looking like it's titillating because yeah. she's she's a very beautiful girl and she grimaces a little bit but you know it's it, and eats a and rose eats, petal oh i've choked on a rose petal like no thank you uh I think they were trying to make it untitillating, weren't they? I mean, it's directed by Claire McCarthy. It, 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 um, no, we should say it's directed by a woman. Yeah, but no, yeah, yeah. I don't need to... Do we need that? Do we need to see that scene? Do we not know that's what happens to teenage girls? I just... Yeah. I, I think, uh, yeah, my only, I, th- I guess the defence would be it's about that kind of stuff, isn't it? Like, I think it's saying this is the this is the stuff we're going to deal... We're going to go down and dirty into the into the kind of... Act, that it's not world that down of, and dirty, this, really, this history. in terms of its... It's softly lit and it's, Yeah, you know, well, it's, it's trying to yeah. be. Right. I, they're presumably also kind of, they're trying to sort of paint the picture of, you know, Livia Drusilla forged through suffering to become yeah. this kind of person that she became. Um, yeah. Um, and I suppose we have to go with her on that yeah. journey. But mm. It's no Leonardo, though. That, that, <laughs> oh, I mean, no, it's, it's not. Way, no, it's not. It's not bad. It is well made. Um, I actually think uh, what Nadia Parks is uh, very beguiling. Um, uh but yeah, I only watched the first episode and it just isn't my cup of tea. Well, it might be your cup of tea, though it definitely wasn't Terry's. Uh, Dominant lands on Sky Atlantic on Friday the 14th of May. Finally this week, something that I suspect is very much more Terry's cup of tea, and that is the third series of Motherland, otherwise known as what Detective Chief Superintendent Carl Michael does when she's not terrorising AC-12. <laughs> Terry, go on then. Oh God, this is brilliant! So... Season three of Motherland is, I'm just going to cut to the chase and say the funniest season yet. This show just gets better and better and better. The first episode of season three just starts with absolute genius on a knit pandemic. So they're riffing on the whole actual pandemic in which this season was filmed. And they have this presentation at the school and they've got like a headmistress and a knit person who's going through slides. So they've got slides just like um, the government had slides and they're running through the contagion and how it's caught and how you pass it on. It is such a brilliant conceit for the first episode. And the entire first episode just revolves around uh, nits and who's got nits and who's giving nits to somebody else and having to uh, essentially quarantine with people who also have nits. It's just such a simple but brilliantly funny idea. Um, 
and they're all back as we as we would expect. Anna Maxwell Martin. Um, it, I mean, I know they're actors, but fuck me. Imagine playing such <laughs> wildly disparate women. Um, although I do enjoy the theory that they live in the same universe and that this is just her out it's of work. It's the same person. <laughs> mm. um, so Ju- I'm not going to give any spoilers, but just some basic setup because Julia is dealing with some stuff with her mum. Uh, Amanda is um, separating from her husband. Liz is still shagging the shepherd, which um, gives me like great hope. Um, Anne has had her baby. She was pregnant, obviously, in the Christmas special. Um, Meg has their own issues, which I won't spoil. And Kevin is having marital problems. And they are all just like, it's the, it's the stuff that Motherland does brilliantly is the huge, big issues, which is things like divorce, things like, you know, illness. But it, the genius is in the detail and the tiny things. It's why the knits work. They're dealing with massive life issues at the same time, but the focus is seemingly on the knits. But it's not, obviously. It's on all the other stuff going on. Um, it's so brilliantly observed. All of the kind of middle-class hot buttons around parenting, about other mums at the school gates, around judgment, around how do you fit in a job and what do you do about your relationship – the the observation in the detail is is what's magic about this show and the writing I have to say I think is the best writing and we should say it's written by Sharon Horgan, Holly Walsh, Helen Serafinowicz, and Barunka O'Shaughnessy and Joanna Lumley is joining as Amanda's mum <laughs> and I should say Amanda this season played by Lucy Punch. Is this season is the she kind of gets a bit more screen time and she is the most deranged and uh tone deaf and insensitive <laughs> and wannabe manipulative as she's ever been. And I am very much enjoying her extra screen time because she is just so fucking dreadful. Um and the observations, especially around her character, are just so on the money. It is incredible. So, and and we often don't review returning shows in the main part of reviews, Jack, because James prefers us to do new series. But I just... Ha- I mean, we do a lot. <laughs> Let's be I wouldn't say it's fucking rare. Well, you always stop us. I don't like us yeah. doing it, but we do do My it. My point being that, I, that this... this I will watch this again when it's on on live TV. I think this is just one of the best written shows on television at the moment. Definitely one of the best written comedies. I just think it is hilarious and insightful. Like I write stuff down when I watch Motherland. So there's a there's a moment in the first episode where Kevin says, "What's the female equivalent of a man cave?" And Liz goes, a panic room. And it was such a brilliant observation. That I just sat staring at the wall pages. I was like, so much bound up in that one exchange. And that's the genius of it. Is it's insightful and incisive and funny and excruciating and all of those things. And I love it. And I wish it would never end. Um, and I'm going to watch it all again this weekend. Yeah, whoever came up, right, from, from Sharon Horgan, Holly Walsh, Helen Serafinowitz and Barack O'Shaughnessy, whichever one of them came up with, the device of having the um the po- them behind the podiums in the first scene and dealing with the n- epidemic the same way that we've watched people deal with the epidemic um was so brilliant that was such a brilliant 
idea to start the series off with that I almost couldn't. I was like, oh my god, I don't think I can keep up. It can keep up with that because that was so genius and so brilliantly done. And the way they use their graphs and they say next slide, please, and all of that, it was fantastic. So I mean, they must have punched the air when they when they dreamt up that um, for this episode. And then, but the brilliant thing about it is, it just it does keep up that level. You're the writing is absolutely incredible. Every you know, just every other minute. There's another brilliant observation um, about the way people are. And yeah, all the characters are just fantastic. Um, I love it. I, I agree with everything Terry said. Um, and what a brilliant, by the way, we talked about Channel 4 having, you know, being a bit of a downtime for comedy. What, what, the BBC is knocking out the park. This is in a double bill with Inside Number 9. You've got um, Alan Partridge on Friday on BBC One. You've got Starstruck on Mondays on BBC One. What, they're going, those shows are all fucking brilliant for the moment on BBC. So BBC and comedy is, is truly having a renaissance, I think. But Motherland is, you know, absolutely the top of it. Yeah, it is It is kind of a masterstroke, isn't it? I, 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 so I've watched a few Motherlands. We've reviewed it before. We also reviewed the Christmas special, which I enjoyed. And every time I've watched it, I've always thought this is good, but I've never felt particularly inspired to watch more of it because, you know, comedy. Um, but this episode, like genuinely, like, and I'm not saying the others were bad because the others were great, but this episode was incredible in terms of just the quality of the gags and the quality of the observation the fact that it's funny and it's bittersweet as well and it's poignant and it feels so real there's so much truth under the humor in this that it's just fucking brilliant like i genuinely thought shit i really have to go back and watch all all of this show because it's just that good and obviously comedy rarely does that for me but yeah i thought this was this was an incredible and i nearly didn't watch this as well i watched this just before we recorded i hadn't actually planned to watch it because we weren't going to review it in full and i was like all right fine i can't watch it i am so glad i did because it actually made my day about 300 percent better it's fucking brilliant so yes i i heartily recommend that as well obviously comedy expert that i am uh this airs on monday as a double bill with inside number nine now we haven't properly reviewed inside number nine boyd has seen it boy do you want to tell us a little bit very quickly about the new series of inside number nine yeah the first episode is like a cross between Commedia dell'arte, which is what? not as wanky as it sounds. It's basically um, Italian for farce. It's kind of high farce with very exaggerated characters. It's that One Man, Two Governors. If you've seen One Man, Two Governors, which was the brilliant, brilliant stage play, a revival of this kind of thing, this kind of high farce, which James Corden was dazzlingly brilliant in. The guy who did all of the physical um, uh, uh, moves for that, kind of designed them, if you like, choreographed those, worked on this episode with the Inside Number Nine guy. So it's a mix of that style with a heist movie and um kevin bishop's in it um and they're all wearing masks so they're and they're all kind of kind of types of of people you might get in a heist movie and on top of that it's incredibly self-referential talking about um other i don't want to spoil anything but there's brilliant references to what's going on now in pop culture and tv and it, uh, honestly it's really brilliantly entertaining and funny and surprising as all the best inside number nines are what else is out this week, Boydie? Oh, my um, God, there's a lot. There's, there's quite a lot, isn't there? Yeah. So there's three families, which on any normal week uh, we would have done, which is a two-part a kind of heartbreaking drama based on true stories of women in Northern Ireland before the abortion bill was passed, before the, the laws were changed. And um, that plays out um, Monday tonight, Monday, and tomorrow, Tuesday. There's a one-off drama on Wednesday on BBC Two called Danny Boy, starring Anthony Boyle, which is a true story of a Lance Corporal Brian Wood who um, was served in Iraq and was um, tried for, very, for for what he did. And that's supposed to, that's really, I haven't seen that. That's a feature-length drama that's going to be really, really good. Halston, 
starts on Friday on Netflix, the, which is a Ryan Murphy production and uh, basically uh, stars Ewan McGregor as this legendary um, American designer uh, who died of AIDS complications in the end. Uh, but that is, that is embargoed until the day. Be suspicious, mm. I say. Um, I don't know. I think maybe with all Ryan Murphy stuff now, they seem to be not letting anyone see it in advance and, and, and review it in advance. So they're being very careful with that. I don't know. And, you know, but we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, you know, we maybe we'll touch on by next week if we've got time, but probably haven't got time. Um, I think that might be about it. But yeah, it's, it, there's a lot. I think Castlevania season four lands on Netflix on the 13th. I think that's the final season of Castlevania. Animation, obviously. Uh, High School Musical, the musical, the series season two comes to Disney Plus oh, well. on the 14th, if uh, if that is indeed your bag. And I believe Love, Death and Robots refer, oh, yeah. returns for its second season also on the 14th. Now, we eviscerated the first <laughs> season of that show, but some people apparently like it. Again, animation, sorry. Um, what is our pick of the week? Seems to me it's a two-horse race. The Underground Railroad. It's got to be the Underground Railroad. For me, it's obviously Motherland, but that's primarily because I haven't seen the Underground Railroad. But honestly, it would probably be that anyway, because I think it's fab. And that is, of course, it for this week's episode of the Pilot TV Podcast, which, of course, we hope you enjoyed. If you did, and a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice wouldn't kill you, then we are, as ever, receptive to those. Uh, you can follow us on the socials uh, at James C. Dyer, at Boyd Hilton, and at Terry underscore White. And you can find us next week, same time, same place, uh, when we'll be going all Victorian X-Men, or I guess X-Women, uh, in The Nevers. Uh, plus, plus, the excellent Catherine Kelly will be our guest on the show to talk about her appearance in ITV's Innocent, and you won't want to miss that. Until then, though, pilot out. <laughs>